0: I don't think you gain credibility by going after it. I think you gain credibility by actually going after something different. And the something different is stewarding power like Jesus stewarded power.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jason here. And today I get to share a conversation I had with Glenn Packiam. Glenn is a pastor and author. He serves as the senior associate pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and also leads their downtown campus. And he's been at that church for over 20 years. And in that time, this church that has had tons of influence across America and around the world has been through a ton. In our conversation, we talk about the very public moral failing of their lead pastor. And then shortly after that a shooting happened in their church where i think two people lost their lives three including the shooter as so we talk about that and the impact that had on him and the staff we got to talk about his relationship with eugene peterson and how that impacted his ministry in profound ways we've had glenn on the podcast before you might remember him back in september 2020 and since then he's written a book called the resilient pastor A lot of it was based off of some really dynamic research done by the Barna Group around people's relationship with the church and pastoral ministry. And so in the book, he reflects on a few questions that we tackle in our conversation. Questions like, what is a pastor's calling and vocation? How do church leaders regain credibility in a world that's really disillusioned and skeptical of pastors? We ask questions about maintaining unity in the church And how do we make disciples in this new landscape? I love the way Glenn thinks and was so grateful for all that he shared in the conversation. So I look forward to you hearing it today. And another thing I wanna share with you before we jump into that conversation. On ccln.ca, we're sharing resources and stories about God at work in the church across Canada. We feel like part of our job is to share stories and point and highlight meaningful things happening in our great country in all the different corners. And we want to use this platform to also highlight examples of churches responding creatively to some of the challenges that we're facing in the church today. And so we just posted about the work that the team is doing at Soul Sanctuary Church in Winnipeg to engage a next generation of lay leadership in meaningful ministry. This is a challenge that we're all wrestling with. How do we raise up a new generation of not just staffed but lay leaders in the church? And so we got a chat with Jordan Machalski about a unique program that they're doing that's inviting young adults to have proximity and meaningful engagement with the church board as a way of mentoring and developing future elders and board members. So you can find that story and many others at ccln.ca slash stories.
2: One thing we love about Compassion Canada is their commitment to the local church and to local church leaders. It's really something that's built into their identity as an organization. And that's one reason why we're happy to partner with them at CCLN. In the 25 countries where Compassion serves children living in poverty, they invest in local churches, pastors, and volunteers to equip and empower the church to reach their neighbors with practical care and the good news of Jesus. Here in Canada, it's the exact same. Compassion is wholly committed to investing in Canadian local church leaders, in particular during these times when refreshment and connection and refueling is so needed. Compassion is doing things like national pastors calls and giving away free resources for pastors. We know you'll find rich connection in reaching out to the Compassion Church team. They'd even love to just hear how you're doing and to pray for you. You can get in touch with them today by heading to Compassion.ca. That's Compassion.ca.
1: Well, Glenn, it is so fun to be back with you. I love chatting with you and I so appreciate you making time. How are you doing?
0: Jason, so good to talk to you, man. I'm doing better now that I'm talking to you. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm hanging in there like everyone else, but man, grateful to have
1: this conversation today. Last time we chatted on this podcast was front end of the pandemic. And we were living in really different worlds because at that time the way restrictions were playing out in Colorado were mm. different from here. And you guys were making, you know, pulling people together, trying to get research. And here we are, almost two years later. You're still alive. You look good. Thank you. So do you, man. I'm glad, glad you're alive and
0: well as well.
1: I love for those. I I find your story so compelling, Glenn and like, because I've I've. I've interacted and other people listening might have interacted with you in different points of your journey as a worship leader songwriter author pastor communicator and um, i just love it if you could take some time to really just kind of unpack your journey in ministry that led you led you to where you are today yeah. so i don't know where you would want to start but take us way back because it's it's really really helpful and particularly i want to hear about your journey at new life
0: yeah well, will take you way way back i i was i'm from malaysia um uh, my parents Um, actually my dad was raised Hindu in Malaysia. My mom was raised Anglican in in Singapore. They met Mm. at the University of Singapore. Uh, and before things were going to get too serious, my mom basically said, I'm not marrying a Hindu. And uh, my dad converted. Uh, there's actually a lot more to the story, obviously, than, than just sort of, you know, dating as an evangelism strategy. Sure. Um, but, um... But, but but you know, I think he was compelled by this God of love uh, mm. versus what he had encountered in Hinduism and in his family. So by the time my sister and I came along, you know, we, we grew up in this Christian home. It was, faith was slowly coming alive for my parents. So uh, they were attending an Anglican church in Malaysia, and then a pastor or a friend invited them to this, like, Bible study with this mm. Baptist pastor during the week. So they would do that. And then Sunday nights they were trying to, you know, do this sort of spirit renewal thing that was sweeping the globe. This would have been the early 80s, you know, so they're doing that. And at the time, the church didn't know what to do with that little group. And so they, they asked them all to leave, actually. So we ended wow. up going to this non-denominational, probably as I think about it now, Pentecostal church. And that's what I grew up in. And then when I was 10, we moved to America. We moved to Portland, Oregon. What uh, brought you, you guys know? over? my parents went to Bible college. They 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 felt like the Lord was calling them into wow. vocational ministry to be pastors. And so mid-career, you know, total change of, of stuff. My dad was in, in the ad agency kind of world. My mom was a teacher. And they went to Bible school. My sister and I went to the Christian school that was connected to the church there. We lived there for three years, and then we moved back to Malaysia. I finished out my high school years, and then I came back to the States to go to college. Um, at Earl Roberts University in Tulsa, and then from there, that was the, the connection to come to New Life. So, Jason, I've actually been at New Life for 22 years. Wow. Um This summer, this August, will be 22 years, which is crazy. I, I never imagined it when I first came out here. It was to be sort of like an intern in the worship department. So, uh, I I was an apprentice to the worship pastor, a guy named Ross. And I was like, Ross, what's my job description? He's like, <laughs> uh, just follow me around, you know? So if he was doing a funeral, I was the piano player for it. You know, if he was doing a wedding, I was the piano player for it. If he was in a meeting, I would come along with him to the meeting. And and I, in hindsight, Jason, that was like such a formative experience of hmm. 22-year-old entering into ministry like that, you know? And then six years in, the, the founding senior pastor at New Life, a guy named Ted Haggard, had a pretty public moral failure. I, mean, yeah. I think most people know that story. And and Ross became the interim senior pastor, and I became the interim worship pastor. And then in the summer of 2007, new senior pastor came in, a guy named Brady Boyd. And, you know, things, things were going well. We're trying to recover, adjust. Someone from the outside... And then, you know, early December of 2007, uh, a gunman, you know, came on our campus. And I always wow. have to, whenever I ever tell this story to someone in, you know, Canada or the UK or somewhere other uh, other part of the world, I'm keenly aware that this is such a uniquely American um, problem, you know, the, the issues with guns and violence in, in this sort of public way. Anyway, a gunman came on the campus and, and took the lives of two teenage girls in the parking lot just randomly shooting. Were you there that day? I, I was there.
1: Oh, bro! In
0: in fact, my wife and I, uh, we had just our two kids at the time. We have four now, but and they were young. They were you know two and a half, and then like 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 one or three and one were the ages of our girls. And my wife was in one of the offices, and I'd gone out in the parking lot to switch out some car seats. And I hear these sounds, and I'm you know I, I didn't grow up around this stuff, so. I didn't know what the sounds were, and eventually I was like, "Oh, th- those are gunshots!" And then people were running out of the building, and I was thinking, uh. "Where's my wife? Where are my daughters?" And and I got in my car, just froze. Like, do I drive away? Do I wait? What what what, what do I run in the building? People were telling me you can't go in. Anyway, the the gunman ended up, you know, being apprehended by an off-duty security officer and and he ended up, you know, taking his his own life. Uh mm-hmm. and I found out that my wife and our daughters were hiding under a desk in one of the offices oh. just waiting. And then they bolted out when they when they heard like right. a break in the gunfire which, you know, we now know was when he he had taken his life. They they ran out the the hallway door and So anyway, obviously obviously very very tragic and and traumatic time. Yeah how Um, long had
1: brady been there yeah a hundred days i mean like a hundred days like like really this is what's so crazy about it is it's just the it's like it's the most tragic thing possible and it's tragedy on tragedy so this is a hurting church grieving in leadership transition and now like when i think about that and new life is a large church for people that don't know like you know where thousands of people are gathering but now there's this fear dynamic added to I don't know if there's any more more you can add to that, but like I just when I hear that story, it's the tragedy of the loss that's first yeah. wave. Yes, but then this element of fear in the room, and there's parts of the global church that this is not they experience it, fear. That's right. That's but we right. We don't experience I mean, that here typically, but yeah, I don't know if there's anything you can add to add texture to that experience. It,
0: you're 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 so right, Jason, in naming some of those layers because there's in some ways there is the betrayal of the scandal. Then yeah. there's the there's the transition, okay, who's this new person? Then there's another tragedy of, of loss of life and then there's fear. All of those secondary losses, the loss of safety, the loss of, you know. And and it, new life along I think it was the generosity of other churches in the city as well who kind of provided for some counselors to come in and meet with our staff, which was such an incredible gift. Hmm. But the report back from the counselors was that the, so many of the staff people didn't want to talk about the shooting. They actually wanted to process the scandal and the betrayal. Oh, so wow! It's interesting. Yeah, it's sometimes. And I wonder about this with the pandemic and the stuff we're, we're, we're living through now. Is will we emerge from this and start seeing counselors? And I hope that we do. If we don't, if, we, if pastors aren't already, you know, see a therapist, see someone that you can, uh, you know, who's off the grid from you. But I, I wonder, sometimes the presenting trauma is not the actual thing that takes the most toll on us. That might have been, it might just reopen an older wound, like like it was for mm. us. We were talking about something that happened a year and a half prior, or 13 months was when the shooting happened. But by the time we were seeing a counselor, you know, it was the following spring. So the 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 scandal had been removed from us for by about 18 months. And that's the thing that people had left unprocessed. Wow. Because there's a kind of like we just gotta, uh, you know, like uh, uh, grit grit our teeth and yeah. and, and lead the yeah. church like so many pastors are doing right now. Like we just gotta make it through. Well, when the adrenaline flushes from our system and it's all over, yeah.
1: What are the wounds left unprocessed? You know, hmm. Hmm. Glenn, we're it's we're going through in the Canadian church a pretty um, public pastors well-known who's there's been another scandal and it's just i just almost wanted just to name that because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i'm just aware that for a lot of people listening it's like it's raising questions like can anybody make it like how does this happen and there's hurt and there's pain there's questions about the models of church like this is what's so there's just a lot. I just wanted to name that. Yeah. This is something that we're processing in real
0: time. I'm aware uh Jason and it it is sad and it's always shaking because we, we want to say, you know, who who can we actually trust? And then we want to say is it systems or models that contributed to it? And I will say when I when we went through that, you know, so it's 06 and the shooting in 07 08 I and then oh nine, I think it was oh nine. I went on my first ever kind of mini sabbatical. Mm. Brady was, Brady was given every full time staff, uh, you know, some extended time. So it was you know it was six weeks, but but I'd never had more than one Sunday off, yeah. you know, in a row like like so many pastors. And and I remember my wife and I were reading some books by Eugene Peterson, and and someone had put it in our hands. You know, first we started. I think I think one of the first ones I read was "Run with the Horses," his book on Jeremiah, and then it was "Long Obedience," and then, you know, and then eventually we started reading his books on pastoral ministry, under the unpredictable plant, uh, working the angles, uh, the contemplative pastor. And we're reading a couple of these books. We were reading on our on our sabbatical, and I remember just, we were looking at each other like who is this guy? And how right. is what kind of vision of church and pastoral work is this? So I, I do think when you go through times of shaking, it's a tender moment. It's, a, it's a, a vulnerable moment whenever there is a revealing. That's a moment where you can say, okay, God, here we are, put us on mm-hmm. the table. And very quickly it became for, for so many of my colleagues and I, it was not about one person's sin, but about our own um, wow. condition, you know? Hmm. And I think the mistake we can make is to is to only spotlight um, someone else's kind of sins. Oh, how did they, how did they? And I get it. We do need accountability. And we do have to name it and we do have to, you know, that's important. And there's a parallel work of not just spotlighting, but searchlighting, allowing the Spirit to kind of searchlight, put the searchlight on our own heart and to say, not not for like, oh, uh, is that sin in you? Maybe or maybe not. But a searchlight in, in the more hidden ways, like, what do you believe about success? What do you believe about uh, value and significance? What do you believe about your own life? And for me, y- y- you know, at, I was... Right before I'd turned thirty was when all that stuff had happened, and so as I was turning thirty, I was wrestling with questions of vocation and the trajectory of my own life. I'd started kind of in that worship ministry mode and was beginning to s- discern this call towards a teaching slash lead pastoral kind of role. Mm. and i I realized, man, I have some major idols of of significance, and I have some major twisted views of what i think a pastor is and what i think the church is so eugene reading eugene was like was like
1: medicine you know it was Mm. like exactly
0: the kind of medicine i needed
1: i find um reading eugene peterson like medicine that sometimes tastes bad
0: exactly
1: (laughs) do you know what i mean like i i'm a big fan we've got there's that most recent biography by wynn collier Mm -hmm. collier He's going to be on the podcast. We're going to chat more about this. Some of Good. the stuff that we're going to chat about today. But he
0: he presents I think you should a do the French pronunciation of his name. By the way, when he's on, is there. it Collier or Collier? I think I think it's Collier because he's American. But but I think you
1: should you should teach him how the French. Mister Collier, said,
2: Collier, how are you? yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'm right now thinking in the back of my head: Can they edit this out so I don't look <laughs> bad? Or are they going to keep it in because That's the guys great. on the it's team perfect. want to? Um, you know, you just see that on the page, Collier, Collier. Anyways, is it Paciem or Paciem?
0: I <laughs> you had it right the first
1: time. <laughs> that's funny. Um, but Eugene presents this vision of pastoral vocation that feels so in sync with my biblical imagination, and feels so out of sync with my day to day job. Whoo, that's well said. And that was something you were wrestling with. And i just love to hear some of that journey. Actually, Wynne talks about Brady in the book and this pastor from New Life that built this friendship with Eugene. And it's both a window into the generosity of spirit of Eugene Peterson with big criticisms of what we would call maybe the mega Mega church, Church, which is a generalization. but but then also this real heart towards pastors and leaders and maybe a, I think a redemptive imagination about everything. So it's pretty cool. I'd love to hear like your own experiences. You sort of wrestle with that in the context of having this job at this big church doing and even touring with music and all this stuff.
0: Yeah. I actually think Wynn's talking about my friend Daniel uh, Grothy, who 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 not oh, that only might be visited, right. Yeah. I think Daniel visited him a couple times and they had some correspondence over the years. I, I ended up having to write, not having, I ended up well, I felt like I had to write to Eugene and say, "How how in the world do we live this out?" Because I was feeling all those tensions of, in our music days, yeah, we 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 were leading worship at church, but there was also the blessing and burden of a record label and travel, and so there's there's this there's a holiness to it, and there's a, a beauty in it, but there's also a taintedness to it that that you experience when you start, um, you know. Um, getting around the the conference world or or quote unquote concerts. It's just, it's a weird, weird thing, especially in America. And then just, yeah, just the dynamics of being at a larger church. Like Eugene, how in the world? You know, you say pastoral work is personal and local. Like how are we supposed to do that? And and I had connected with him via um, one of his dear friends who had kind of been his his agent slash publisher and And he had been kind enough to like write a little blurb about one of one of my early books, and so I wrote to him and said, "All right, I need a I hear you do visits. Can I visit you and so a buddy of mine, a colleague at new life aaron stern uh he and I went to go visit Eugene and we spent three days in his home. We arrived in time for an evening meal, and then we had the whole you know next day, and then the day after that about a half day and it was i mean it was it was what you would imagine visiting, sort of like a sage, you know, or, mm. or maybe a, a, a saint. And I had, and I know as if you know, people who have read Eugene's biography, his prayer was, Lord, make me a saint and an mm-hmm. earthy saint, you know, yeah, not like an untouchable. And it was like that. I mean, he would ask us these opening questions, like, uh, why are you here, you know, <laughs> and you're sort of like, uh, I, I don't, what's the right answer? Or we would ask him a question, and he would sit and roll his eyes back and think, you know, and it would take like minutes that felt like hours before he answered. Wow. And then, and then it relaxed, and there's a lot of laughter and jumping in the lake and swimming with him in the freezing cold lake and all this stuff. But, but what I learned was he really had not had any experience with non-denominational megachurches, that hmm. he was thinking of his context of the Presbyterian church and how it had become so... Um, Program, programmatic and and um, you know systematic in terms of how uh, churches were designed to quote unquote grow and all that. Of course, he had familiarity with these other c- kind of non denominational megachurches, but not very well. He's like he said, "You're the first megachurch pastors I actually know." You know, so wow. in in some ways, we got to maybe uh, put some nuance on that <laughs> image uh, for him. But my biggest takeaway was he said, he said, man, there's no perfect context in which to be a pastor. And that really stuck with me, Jason, because, you know, his mom was a Pentecostal preacher. He never envisioned himself being in the uh, Presbyterian world. And I think for all of us, there's always, uh, if we're honest and we're alert... There's yeah. always an uneasiness to our, how we sit in the pastoral vocation. I, I think every pastor sits in their job and at the end of the day says, "I don't know how, how how'd we do today? How was what is this okay?" You know, and 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 you're wrestling with it and and i think it was it was encouraging to hear eugene say yeah there's no perfect context but if you have a space within which you can be personal and local mm. with people and attentive to them and to attentive to god at work in their lives then 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 you can be there but even that is such a it's such a subjective thing cuz my friend ended up concluding that he needed to leave. And he went and planted a church, great church up right. in Northern Colorado. And I left the trip feeling like, okay, I think I can stay,
1: You know, so yeah. I'd love just to, to stay there for a second, because I think that's really powerful for some people to respond to revelation mm. of what it is to be a pastor means, I got to change environment. I cannot live into these values, what God's doing in my heart here. But then for you, and I've just seen the way God's caused that to flourish in your life and in your church. Like I can do this here. And I just think that's worth, I'd love to hear anything else you'd add to that because we're all looking for the answer. Like, do we need to blow this thing up or do I need to quit? And it's like, never that simple. And it's like, how did you discover like, because yeah, I just would love just to lean into that a little bit more.
0: It's such a great question, Jason, because uh, we would like an easy answer. Like, yeah. mega church is bad house church is good or or or, or you know whatever Denom it, it used to be in the previous era of, or, you know denomination's bad non-denominational good or you know and and it's just never that simple mm. and i think part of the reason it's not that simple is because the nature of jesus's calling to us is deeply personal and mm. and is first and foremost it's a call of intimacy so i think of i think of Peter, you know, at the end of John's gospel, John 21, Jesus is renewing his call to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Mm. And I, I think I think whenever we're in a moment of vocational uncertainty, and lots of pastors are right now, I've gotten to wor- work yeah. with Barnett to know a lot of these stats. 29% of pastors in America, uh, January of last year said, hey, we're we're seriously thinking of quitting. They asked again in October of last year. It it rose to thirty eight percent. Wow. Um. That we we did some new research at the end of twenty twenty about vocational confidence. Are you more confident of your calling now than when you started, or or less confident? And it's it's a question we had asked five years prior, and that that we were able to ask again. You know, in in twenty twenty and. The sh- the long and short of it is more pastors are less certain of their calling now than when they first began, and fewer pastors wow. are more confident of their calling than when they first began. So, v- when you're in those moments of vocational uncertainty, I think I think it's tempting to say, "Well, okay, w- do I need to change the job or the context of the church?" And you might. But the place to start is with your call to Jesus himself. And so Jesus doesn't say to Peter, look, man, I know you come back to fishing. You you see that I'm alive and, you know, I've forgiven you and blah, blah, blah. But, but hey, do you love the church? Come on, Peter, you signed up to lead the church, you know, upon this rock. He doesn't say, do you love the sheep? He doesn't say, do you love miracles? He doesn't say, do you love a move of God? Like Peter, you're about to do some great miracles. He says, do you love me? And Mm -hmm. I, I think... I think if we get that right, Jason, that our first calling, even as pastors and leaders, is to Christ himself, is to intimacy with Jesus, then we can say, we, we can hear Jesus say, okay, great, now stay with me, we're, we actually are going to make a change, or stay with me, we're going to work from within this system or this structure, and either way... Uh, so, so after Jesus does all this with Peter, he says, hey, hey, what's happening with this disciple here? Is he going to, you know, is he going to be alive or, you know, whatever? And Jesus is all, what is that to you? You right. follow me. And that's that's the issue for us. Whenever you come into seasons where your vocational confidence is shaken, we, we want to know, should, should I do that? I mean, look at them. They're doing that. Or they, they moved on, or they decided to plant, or they, you know, maybe, but really, what is that to you? You follow Jesus. You stay with Jesus.
1: Hmm. I think it's an interesting conversation to have because as more and more millennial leaders become pastors, and I'm going to make some generalizations here, there definitely there's tons of outliers, but not only are we in uncertain times where big questions are being asked about the church, about the structures and systems, both by the culture and within, there's also a generation who inherently are less likely to stay in one spot. So by very nature (laughs) of our demographic, and I'm speaking as a millennial, uh, it's like we have like lower lo- lower loyalty, less of a vision to be in one spot for a long time, more freedom and flexibility, probably pros and cons in that. But if you think about those two things colliding at once, what is a recipe for is a massive shift and um, and a shifting of people. And I just think it's, the, it's a really important time for myself. And maybe I'm just processing, mostly on this podcast, I'm just processing my own issues. And there's a lot awesome. of them is being like, what does it look like for me to be, well, hey, I'm gonna make a sick transition transition here to your book. What does it look like for me to be a resilient pastor? And resilient in a number of ways. I didn't mean to do that, but then I just realized that's, like, that is what I'm asking is how do I be a resilient pastor? And also how do I be a person who stays mm-hmm. rooted? Doesn't mean I never switch whatever because I don't want anyone to feel guilty for no. taking a job in that no. church. That's just would no. be totally yeah. not the heart, yeah. right. but a rootedness, a stick like a like a rootedness in a place and a people yeah. and in a calling.
0: I I I think you're absolutely right about the generational struggle with rootlessness or because of technology and because we figured out especially during the pandemic that we can work from anywhere. Yeah. Well let's move here, let's move there. And, and 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 that's okay. That may be the right thing. But I would want to say discern those decisions by the right criteria. And the right criteria can never just be economics and can never just be Uh, um, fulfillment or self-oriented. It has to also be about community and it has to also be about where can I be... be, um, Where is a place that is a place of contribution for me? Hmm. So some reasons to leave are when it's not healthy, and it is toxic, or you've maxed out your contributions. Some some younger leaders will feel like, honestly, Glenn, like, I don't have, and over the years, you know, I've talked to people about my story and and, and my decision to stay, but the truth is, I've been very lucky to have been given a way to keep contributing, and to keep right. growing, and to keep shaping, and to keep helping to lead the church. Not everybody gets that. And and sadly, there are a lot of leaders who are very controlling, or very very, you know, even if it's let's not make it a judgment. Let's just say their leadership style even might be to to be less collaborative. Right. Okay. Well, then maybe maybe you do need to you know need to move on. And I am struck, Jason. I, I this is very very early um, thoughts, but I tweeted the other day out of a conversation that I had with a friend in the UK. I was just in the UK for a couple of weeks, and we were talking about. The different spiritual orders, or the different orders of of spiritual traditions, you know, the Benedictine is like rootedness, stability, the vow of stability. The the the, the you know, you have this kind of um, Franciscan one, which is more of the vow of simplicity and 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 almost like you just go, and whatever interruptions come your way, that that's what the Lord wanted for you. Um, and then there's the the Jesuit or Ignatian way, which is a little bit more of a vow of activity. I mean, they wouldn't say it that way, but Go and achieve and do, go and do for the glory mm. of God, and <clears throat> so I want to be careful, not making one seem more holy than the other, yeah, um but i I do think we cannot make these decisions in a consumer way or in a selfish way. We have to discern them communally
1: and in mm-hmm. a christ oriented way. Oh, I appreciate that so much um I'd love to shift gears and talk about your most recent book, The Resilient Pastor. Um, thank you for the work you, you did in this book um, the research that Barna did is helpful it's u.s research mm-hmm. um, i found as i read through it as a canadian yeah it was really easy to filter like sure you can like anecdotally i can sense which stuff represents and articulates effectively the trends that we're experiencing around us and which stuff may or may not be but it, deeply helpful and the research just to be really clear, I just recommend for everyone like read the research. It does give a window into what we're experiencing here in the Canadian context. But I it was mostly the reflections um that you made. You talked about like the challenges facing both the church and pastors. And I just found the book so helpful. So I just would love to hear a little bit of like how this book came about and and the heart behind it.
0: So David Kinneman, the president of Varna, approached me a f- few weeks, I think, before the pandemic. Of course, we didn't know what was around the corner, and he said, "Would you like to partner with us to write a book about the the challenges facing pastors in a changing world?" And I was honored, and and excited about it because I thought, "Man, this is great!" the The idea of pairing situational analysis with theological reflection is, is a model that I had learned in my doctoral mm. work in the UK, and, and I, I got excited about it. And so I went to work, sort of outlining, you know, what I thought maybe maybe these eight challenges. Some of them. Uh, might be particular, but others of them, the majority of them of, of the eight are kind of evergreen, you know, throughout church history. Yeah. And and then the pandemic broke out and we adjusted that list a little bit, and I thought, man, this is all of a sudden, you know, uh, one, I felt like the Lord uh, tricked me into saying yes to a project that now had more uh, weight than I realized— uh, but also, you know, in a sober way, felt like this could be a for such a time as this sort of mm. thing, and so I got to work with their research team to design questions that went out to pastors, yeah, in the U.S. Uh, in the fall of 2020, and then some general population questions that went out to, uh, uh, you know, in the U.S. But I then followed it up with focus groups that I I led with pastors in Canada and the US Mm. and in the UK. And in the book, all their names are changed and all that. But I just wanted to hear, here's what we're we're hearing back via the the survey instruments and that kind of research. But what about your stories? And what about your context? A little more, you know, qualitative research. But even, even that, you know, that is maybe you call that part of the book the insight. But my goal was to pair insight with wisdom. And mm. in, you know, insight plus wisdom. And if that that you know, the data, the research, the insight is maybe ten, fifteen percent of each chapter, twenty percent at the most. The wisdom I'm culling, not not it's not wisdom I have to give. That wouldn't be a very good book. But the uh, wisdom I'm, tr- I'm trying to call wisdom from the scriptures, but really also from church history. Mm. I don't know, Jason, if you heard you know, people keep kept referring to um, you know, this is an unprecedented time and never before and hardest time for pastors ever. And yeah, I, you know, look, the unprecedented thing, I had some fun with that because of the way history works. It's technically all unprecedented, you know? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but <laughs> it, it, And of course, in another sense, I know what they're saying. It's in recent yeah. memory and in our, in recent generations, whatever. But, Man, when you look farther back in church history, there's some really dark days where yeah. church leaders are being executed. And so, when you look back historically, and then when you look and you alluded to this, when you look globally, um, the the church has been through some, or is going through some some really difficult times. To think of Christians and church leaders in Ukraine right now. Um, so obviously, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 goal was to say all right, you are feeling these challenges, but how can we find wisdom from our wider family, the family that goes all the way back in church history and the family that spans the globe? And so the eight challenges were divided into two categories, four for the pastor and four for the church.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll just name them real quick and then... And then yeah, hit, you know. hit me with them. This, yeah. I love it, by the way, the format, and I'm not just trying to be nice, like the format of these challenges, what it did... it. I'm always so grateful when someone puts language to something that i feel vaguely and i'm like grabbing at but you brought language to something like i think everyone when you hear this and even as you read the book i really hope you do um and it's a resource because you've unpacked and you've included so many other voices some canadian voices as well our boy ken shigematsu here in <laughs> vancouver right. shout out ken shout out um, ken but you've you've put language to real challenges we're facing as pastors individually and then church broadly. And so just thank you so much for that articulation. But yeah, walk us through, yeah. give us the overview of those. Well, it's very kind of you,
0: Jason. And and the, so the four challenges for the pastor, the first is the challenge of vocation, which we've already been talking about today. You know, like what is a pastor called to do and to be? And then secondly, the challenge of spirituality, how does her own soul get renewed as mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's trying to lead others, and then the challenge of relationships. How how is the pastor supposed to actually have meaningful connection with others? Because our work has the veneer of intimacy, but does it? Is it does? It, is it mm. really? Uh, does it, do we really have good relationships? And then fourthly, the challenge of credibility. Uh, you know, what is the world around us? What does the church even I think of the pastor? And then the four challenges facing the church are the challenge of worship. Why do we gather together? Of course, that became a huge question during the pandemic. Uh, The challenge of formation, how do we actually make disciples? The challenge of unity, how do we fight for and preserve unity? I I don't know how it was in Canada, but I think everybody around the world was watching the silly divisions in the U.S. about every uh, little thing. And then the challenge of mission, what is our actual... Mission in the world. So those were the eight challenges that form kind of the the heart or the, the bulk of the book. There's an introductory chapter that lays the cultural landscape of the shifts in Western cultures, Western countries. And then there's some closing bits about hope for
1: for the future. Um I would love to go into each one with you, but I don't think we've yeah. booked enough time on your calendar to do it. Um but can I can I lean into like one or two just Let's a little bit? Let's do it. One that stood out to me um, was the challenge of credibility, and this is anchored in in some research in terms of the perception of people within and without the church uh towards pastors. Can you just speak to both like what the research was showing and then what do we do about that
0: well it's interesting because when when we ask people you know is a pastor a trustworthy source of wisdom uh you know the the general population you're like, yeah." you know 50-50 whatever but when you separate out like um christians versus non-christians you kind of get this you kind of get this real glimpse because you 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 had 4% of non-christian adults saying only 4% saying yes definitely which uh, of course that makes sense like why would they say a pastor is a is a trustworthy source of of wisdom but then and then 18% said yes somewhat so we're talking about 22% total That kind of say, yeah, a pastor's a trustworthy source of wisdom. But then when you look at Christians, this is where it gets a little, little, you know, uh, uh, shady here, Jason, is only 31% of Christians said yes, definitely, and Mm. an additional 40% said yes, somewhat. And you put it together... That's seventy-one percent of Christians who say a pastor is, a tr- is at least somewhat a, a trustworthy source of wisdom, which means twenty-nine percent don't. So on any given Sunday or whenever you do your services, I, I feel like yeah, yeah, it, it, that's right. There's a third of the people sitting out there. I listening feel that. To me, right? I feel that right. when I'm preaching, I feel yeah. the
2: like they're listening yeah, to you maybe. and they're like
0: <laughs> eh, maybe you know maybe he's right. So yeah, they're they're googling things right as you're speaking.
1: Yeah. Oh man! So what do we do about this? You know, it would be tempting to kind of say,
0: "All right, how do we regain credibility?" And I'm not sure it works like that. Um, hmm. I think it's a byproduct, not a goal. I, I don't think I don't think um, you gain credibility by going after it. I think you gain credibility by actually going after something different, and the something different is stewarding power, like Jesus stewarded power. Hmm. Um, and I, and so that's why, honestly, Jason, I, I man, I, I'm heavy hearted about this because you've referenced some of the scandals and different things. And, and I, I, we've seen it, obviously one of the big podcasts that made it, you know, it took everyone's attention was the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So I think my first response to a statistic like this about credibility is to say, God have mercy on us, mm. you know, like. What have we done to misuse the power or misuse the trust that people yeah. have had in us? And, and maybe maybe it's like, okay, hey, come on, Glenn. I, I, I'm not so-and-so, and I didn't do that. It's true. And yet, any there is this sort of um, skittishness or lack of trust, I want to say, maybe there's a holy invitation here to say, mm-hmm. again, it's that spotlight versus searchlight thing. It's a holy invitation to say, how am I using power, Lord? Am I stewarding this well? And in the book, in that chapter, I reflect on on King Saul, and I won't give the mini-sermon on that here, but you see the three ways that Saul sort of mishandles, misuses his authority. And of course, our, our answer is is to remember that our authority doesn't come from how large our churches are or how... Big, our social media platform is, or our education. I mean, all of the things in the last couple hundred years in the West that we have kind of used to bolster our authority. I can speak to you because I'm the Reverend Doctor, and I, you know I've got that in my Twitter handle, and I, and or I can speak <laughs> to you because I built this large church. Or I can speak, you know, I, I I can speak to you because I have thousands of Instagram followers. That's not actually the source of our authority. The source of our authority is Jesus, which means the shape of our authority needs to look like Jesus's. And so, I, you know, my my response Mm. to to this is to say, uh, you know, John thirteen, Jesus when he knew that the Father had entrusted everything into his hands, and you know, he loved them, loved them. He 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 took off his outer garment and began to wash their feet. And maybe this is the sober invitation that we need to say. How can I steward my spiritual influence, my uh, power? How do I name it? And how do
1: I use it
0: uh, in order to wash people's feet?
2: Hmm. Wow,
1: you'd mentioned earlier, you gave some commentary when you mentioned unity, you said, I wonder what it's like in Canada. Hmm. Um, the last four or five months have been brutal for the church in Canada in terms of unity. Um. Anyone listening doesn't need the explanation, but it's like what I think the U.S. context, again, generalizing, experienced maybe 12 months before us. We're experiencing our own version of it, political disunity. um, And this isn't always the case, but literally churches in the last six months that have gone through multiple splits even over political issues, mandates, and other things. So uh, we're feeling it. And just to anyone listening, I just want you to know um you're not alone uh, if you're in despair you're discouraged you're heartbroken you're alone and um yeah we're feeling that and we're praying with you um we love your reflections glenn on what do we do as pastors in this time where we experience cultural disunity in the world but it's also breaking into and breaking up the church
0: you know the 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 unity of the church is such an important part of the gospel itself. Uh, I've been so influenced, as you have, Jason, by people like Tom Wright, who who talk about the gospel as this people who've been set right, who then join the work of setting things right in the world. But part of how we participate in that work of setting things right in the world is our own... Uh, embodiment as a community of people Mm. that have been fit together that a community that that people should scratch their heads and say how did these people all end up together and the only answer should be jesus you know and so when we divide because of ethnicity or economics or politics we are blaspheming the gospel we are bringing we are bringing shame to the gospel because the gospel is announcing to the world, is supposed to be an announcement to the world that in Jesus there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. You know, th- there is this radical community of difference. Hmm. Uh, so the the difference doesn't go away, but the division does because it's been s- the our differences have been uh, uh, superseded by uh, the 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 redemption of Jesus, who makes us one. So. What do we do? I I I think, and I've learned a lot from other people. Sandra Van Opstel wrote a book a few years ago about multicultural worship, and I think she she named these words that uh, I just thought I, I've I, ever since I read them and heard her talk about it. I, it's really stuck with me, and she's a Latina who works with with a, a congregation in a different uh, you know difficult uh, uh, economic part of Chicago, and she says. Look, we have to we have to have some movements, and, and she describes this movement of you start with hospitality, where you are welcoming to people who are other than you or different than you. You know the the biblical Greek word for hospitality, literally, right? Welcoming the love of the the stranger, the person who is to you strange, but just because they're not you. And so there's there's that. But then she says, you move from hospitality to solidarity, which hmm. if hospitality says you are welcome here, solidarity says, and I will stand with you. Now, I just want to pause and say, when the racial um, demonstrations and African-Americans began to voice their pain in the wake of the George Floyd stuff, and people were like, well, that that's not true. That can't be true in America or whatever. it it was so heartbreaking to me because we missed the moment of solidarity. It's one Mm. thing for, and let's just say it, it's one thing for a predominantly white church to say to an African American, oh, you are welcome here, hospitality, great. But will you show solidarity? Will you stand with them in their pain, even though it's not your pain? Mm. So that move from hospitality to solidarity and then she talks about the third move is from solidarity to mutuality, where it's not patronage. It's not me helping you or you help, you know, it's, there's a genuine mutuality here. And Jason, those are, you know, those are great concepts. I, I still know that fleshing this out is messy. It's painful. Mm-hmm. uh, uh it, it, It's costly. And so in some ways, the biblical answer to this in Philippians is, you know, let this same mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So there's a humility Hmm. that makes unity possible. And so maybe the first answer for for all of you pastors is help your church embrace the humility that was in Jesus so that we can then think about these moves of hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality that result in unity i hate that i mean i lo- kind of love that they all rhyme but i also hate that it might sound cheesy that way
1: but anyway that's uh that's the reflection um thank you thank you for all that you've shared and written um what's giving you hope this is where i kind of want to end yeah you know where where are you finding personal strength in the season and then as you sort of see the shifting landscape of the church, I know that you're looking at it with eyes of hope and redemption. Where are you seeing redemptive potential in life?
0: The the hope is in the historic and global church because we we've the Lord has helped us before. Uh churches have been on the edges of power before. Um and so there, there's hope there and, and and certainly around the world, um, there's a there's a purity. Um, that that is born of the adversity um, that people are experiencing. So, those are encouraging things. But, but I think I think if I were to say a bit more, I, I, what gives me hope is um, the the kind of collaboration that churches are embracing. Toward the end of the book, there's a chapter called "The Collaborative Church," and I, I love think that, about. By the way, I love that so much. Yeah, and I think about three layers of this collaboration. You know. One is what I've I've called symbiotic influence, you know, where charismatic churches are borrowing from the contemplative or historic practices and, uh, you, you know, historic churches are freshening up with new music or whatever it might be. There's a symbiotic influence where we're not just staying being tribalized about our, our practices, but we're enriching each other. And then there's another layer where more locally in the community there's these missional partnerships. And I know you've seen this in in Canada, maybe you've been at this longer than we have in the US. Sometimes churches have tended to say we can do it all on our own instead of saying what about city networks? What about collaborating with other, you know, uh, churches or agencies for the sake of our own community? So these missional partnerships instead of reinventing the wheel. But then one click Further down, to drill, zoom in even more, is this idea of healthy teams in local mm. churches. I love that you're doing this, Jason, at your church. I love I, I love that I hear so much, particularly from younger leaders, the desire to kind of shed the superhero, s- heroic individual pastor kind of model. Um, one of the reasons so many pastors are exhausted is the impossible expectations of the role, And, the, you know, maybe one answer to that is to tell people to not have such high expectations, maybe. (laughs) Uh, But I think another part of the answer to that is to say, you know what, it takes a team. It's going to take different gifts. It's going to take different personalities. It's going to take women and men. Uh, It's going to take young and old. We're all going to need to be together uh, to, to help shepherd the people of God.
1: Well, I want to say a huge thanks again to Glenn for making time to be with us today. I love the work he's done in The Resilient Pastor. And if you want to find that book or any other resources we talked about, you can find that in the podcast description or on ccln.ca. Hey, let me tell you about our next episode. On our next session together, we have Gordon Smith. He is the president of Ambrose University in Calgary. And prior to that, he was the executive director at Resource Leadership International and the academic dean of Regent College. I mean, he's done a lot. He's written a number of great books on topics of prayer discernment, calling. This is why we wanted to have him here. These are the conversations we need to be having about discernment, calling, spiritual formation. And he wrote one book called Welcome Holy Spirit. So I'm really excited about the conversation we're having with him. Honored that he would say yes to join us on the podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Hope you'll join us for that. See you all later.